Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. But first, we're going to talk a bit about what's going on up in uh, the care homes. Visitation rules only just have only just relaxed in those long-term care homes. It's been a challenging and devastating year for so many living and working in that sector for the past year. And then, of course, now the wildfires are hitting. Riz Galen is, uh, knows exactly what I mean. He's the uh, owner and operator of Carefree Manor in Hunter Mile House. Hi, Riz. Hey, good morning, George. So tell me what the, how the fires are up there today. Well, we have uh, evacuated everyone from 100 Mile House, so um, our care home's been uh, evacuated. The fires um, uh, continue around uh, the community, and um, in fact, yesterday I, I, I actually got a call from a well-wisher um, um, right from the front lines, um, uh, one of the medics working uh, from one of the camps just outside 100 Mile House, and, and she was checking in on our residents who had been moved to Chase because that's where she's from, so... Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of people, um, you know, checking in on, on our seniors these days. Obviously, it's, you know, tell me what happened there. This is obviously a s- ultimate challenge after this past year, but what happened uh, at that care home that you guys operate at a Carefree Manor? Yeah, so we got the call last week. Um, we could see the fires building up around the, the community. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were, we were um, you know, aware that this, this is a possibility, and uh, we had bags ready to go for, for each of our seniors, made sure that uh, medications, care plans, all those things um, were, were ready to go at a moment's notice. And, and sure enough, we got a call from the, the fire chief on uh, Wednesday letting, them know, letting us know that uh, an alert was coming. And, uh, and, and so we started to uh, um, um, you know, follow our evacuation protocols and plans and work with the health authority. And, um, and, and uh, you know, a lot of people uh, put in a lot of hours uh, I can think of a few people that need a vacation, um, uh, like Mike. <laughs> yeah, that that I mean, long-term care homes have uh, obviously varying uh, levels of capabilities of the people that live there, and so how do you manage that? Uh, not only physically, but emotionally, and you know, and their different mindsets. How do you how do you deal with that? Yeah, it's really tough, George, because um, you know you're taking people from very familiar surroundings, mm-hmm. um, and and they're familiar with the, with with the caregivers, and and uh, and unfortunately for us, we 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 couldn't even keep our residents all together. They got split into three different groups. There's there was no one location that could could handle um, the the size of, of of our group, and so um, some are in Williams Lake, uh, some are in Chase, and some are down in Merritt. Um, so not not having that familiar surrounding, uh, you know, it t- it took took some time for them to adjust. Um, we're a simple single story building, and mm-hmm. now they're in much larger settings uh, and and multi floor elevators. So yeah. it's it's uh, it's been a bit of an adjustment, but they're doing a lot better this week, and um, and and I think we're, we're we're good from here. But when you go and when your staff are said, okay, it's go time. Unlike, say, you know, where if you're a family, get in the car, get out, go, you know, you literally must have to sit down, okay, and walk many of them through what's going to happen next. It can't just be a matter of, okay, let's go, get in the bus, we're out of here. I mean, or is it? 
no, no, we definitely planned. Um, we had meetings with the staff uh, in advance. Again, just just knowing that this this was uh, a possibility. Um, we we have the benefit actually at at uh, at our site of mm-hmm. uh, um, the experience from 2017. Many of our staff uh, went through the evacuations uh, in in town back in 2017, so uh, that helped uh, that we took some of that experience mm-hmm. and um, you know it, it made things a little bit easier uh, this time around. But it's it's never easy, and um, you know we asked a number of our staff to leave their families, leave their kids uh, behind in Hundred Mile House, and, and stay with our seniors and. Uh, move with them out, and and so that's 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 a tough ask uh, when when the town's in an alert and and people have their own their own concerns about their family safety. When you choose the locations you're going to, is it based just on availability, or is it based on the needs of the actual uh, people that you're sending to those places? Uh, a bit of both. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the 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 location that we send them to has to be appropriate uh, for the level of care that we're providing. Um, Interior health uh, helped coordinate uh, the logistics of the move. Um, they, they helped us source uh, the capacity in the system, and, and uh, so they've been a great help and a great partner in, uh, in, in, in the process here. Obviously, this past year has been, you know, especially for you and your, your industry, the world, you know, the people that live in, in, the, in, these, in these facilities, you know, what, this, this just adds to the nightmare that it has been a year and a half for you. Can you tell me a bit about what's been going, you know, how that year and a half has been for you? It's it's been a very challenging year and a half. Um, you know, unprecedented um, times for us in our sector. Um, we've worked really hard. We've got some some staff that are that are really burnt out. Um, and and uh, you know, sadly, we were just coming out of this. We were just starting to see mm-hmm. uh, the end. We were just opening up visitation. We were opening up uh, normal activities and and things that we would uh, normally do historically. And so, uh, a little bit of a setback for for our residents. Uh, um, but we'll 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 make sure we do something special when this is all over, and we bring them back. Mm-hmm. And and uh, um, that's that's the best we can do here. What are you hearing about that possibility of getting them back, and, or is it getting worse? And do you worry about you know your facility and the, and the fire and what might happen in that area is that even a possibility? Um, no, I, I think structure structurally, I think we're we're okay given mm-hmm. where we're located within the town. Um, I, I don't see that as an issue um, in terms of coming back. We check the weather every day, and uh, uh, it's not looking uh, it's not looking very uh, promising. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of sun and uh, a lot of hot weather still to come. So um, we we won't uh, move our residents back until it's until it's. Uh, safe and uh, we get the all clear uh, I'd hate to have to do this again the places they went how, how did they manage to fit them in quite often these you know these long-term care homes are already full uh, did they just find extra space or did they you know or there was there availability in in those homes yeah you know what there was a little bit here and a little bit there mm-hmm. so that 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 was um, how we made it work um, so there was there was a few beds um, at each of these three sites and um, we're very thankful that uh, they, they made those beds uh, available to us. Uh, it's been a huge help. Um, those communities themselves have been um, really welcoming. And so, you know, we really appreciate everything um, um, they've done. I know in, in Chase, uh, the volunteer firefighters, a uh, number of members in the community, uh, they came out and um, helped set up beds. So we had beds delivered, dropped off at the front. Um, and and uh, they, they were kind enough to come and help us get those set up and 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 just welcome our residents um, to the community. Um, we put a call out at one point just for some used TVs and and mm-hmm. and you know things that uh, um, you know would just help make uh, our residents' lives uh, a little bit more comfortable, right. so they're not sitting in an empty room. And yeah. and and again, the community has just been so great. Um, we had. 
five brand new TVs in a box uh, dropped off at our site. Wow. And, uh, a lot of people willing to help out and um, um, really, really appreciated. Any advice uh, to other uh, care homes and the families and the people who live in these care homes uh, the, from your experience that you can send out there? Um, well, a, a lot of planning in advance is, is helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the end of the day, there's, there's uh, only so much you can plan. You don't really know. Uh, where where there's going to be capacity mm-hmm. in the system at the time of an alert. So um, I think the biggest lesson for us is is maybe um, trying to do some pre-planning before our residents um, actually arrive in in the new uh, homes or the setting where they're going to. Uh, I think we were we were pretty well planned on our end in terms of um, getting them moved out. But uh, um, I think doing some advanced planning uh, to make sure that they they know. Uh, what's coming. Uh, that would be one thing uh, uh, I, I, I would uh, do a little bit different. All right, Riz, thanks very much for joining me this morning. Thanks, George. Take care. George Affleck uh, in for Mike Smith today and for the next two weeks. Thanks for joining me this morning. And, you know, there are 39 wildfires of note burning in BC right now. Those fires, that means that they're deemed highly visible or pose a threat to public safety. We all know that devastation fires can leave. You, know, you can think of the, the image of Lytton, which has been, you know, burned to nothing. And but what are the emotional tolls that the wildfires can exact on people, especially those who, who lose their homes? Having studied the 2003 Okanagan Mountain Park fire, one of the largest wild uh, land interface fires in Canadian history, Marianne Murphy, the Associate Professor of Sociology and Social Work at UBC's Okanagan campus, is here to share some of those unique thoughts. Hello, Marianne. Good morning. Thanks for joining me. So what, while on the surface, you know, we, we know this can be devastating. So, you know, why study it? What, tell me about your study and why you did it. Um, I led a study along with other disciplines of photography, mm-hmm. fire science and nursing, because we were interested in how some of the families here who had lost their homes were doing a year later. Our study uh, was sponsored by now Fortis, B.C., And so during that process, we also learned about the really important role that linemen play uh, in the fires, which we hadn't previously understood. But what we did is interview these 25 families, obviously a year later then, in their then homes to Mm -hmm. talk about how they were doing, what advice they would have for other evacuees, and uh, to talk about some of the lost objects that were left behind Mm -hmm. and destroyed and what the loss of those things in home actually meant to them. And, and what, what kind of things did you hear? Well, first of all, we heard about the acute stress that people experience when they've been told to evacuate. So right now, as you know, we have almost mm-hmm. 20,000 households either evacuated or on alert in British Columbia. That's a huge number of people. We had 33,000 during Okanagan Mountain Park fire evacuees. But they experience something called acute stress, so they become very uh, disquieted, discombobulated. There's a sense of disbelief that this isn't really Uh. going to happen to them. And so they either are kind of lulled into a bit of not doing enough, or else they panic. It's a form of psychological stress. They panic, can't think logically, and run around the house. Later, of course, regretting, forgot this, I forgot Mm -hmm. that. What a terrible parent I am. How could I have forgotten the children's important trophies? You know, I wasn't the proper leader of the family. I failed to get this and this. And they blame themselves uh, for, as we found out, more than a period of a year for failing to properly even evacuate, to say nothing of what they experienced after the fire. 
It's interesting. So our previous, you know, uh, conversation regarding long-term care homes, uh, you know, they do a lot of prep, prep for the worst. And I think it sounds like sometimes individuals don't do the same sort of thing, especially in areas where there are these kinds of fires that are happening now regularly. Is that something that they regret or something that helps them know what to do in the future? The family spoke about that a lot. Of course, some people have zero time uh, to respond. I remember one family, they were having mm-hmm. a family reunion, and they could see activity outside the house, but they hadn't listened to media all day. They had no idea until the fireman banged on their door and told them, get out now. So you really feel for these families when they've had zero time. Others just can't think straight. They end up running around taking things that didn't really matter. So if you're interested, they shared a lot of advice for potential evacuees, which is all of us, I suppose, today, Mm -hmm. um, about what they should think about taking. So they advise, take a bit of time, think about what's really important to you. Uh, think about what you frequently use. That could be things. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't forget your pets and your favorite things like the clothing out of your laundry hamper. Mm-hmm. One woman uh, was grateful that she had re- taken her wedding dress, which is something I don't think most people would <laughs> think about. Uh, they also didn't think about the Christmas decorations that were generally down in the crawl space. So hmm. they said, think about the oldest family mementos in your homes. Generally, those will be very inexpensive things Mm -hmm. in a box under the bed. The photographs that you haven't stored digitally, but if you have, don't forget your hard drives, your memory sticks, anywhere that you've Mm. stored some of these photographs. Uh, Think about what could be replaced and what couldn't be for you. So that could include artwork or we heard a lot about collections of books. Stuff that may not always be valuable, which is interesting. The, yeah. It, it's, I think it's, um, it sounds like that people are diff. you know, everybody obviously is, reacts differently. And so you have to understand that, that not everybody's the same. Not everybody becomes a hero in the situation. And so right. after the fact, how, once they've gone through this, how do you help them? How did, what did, what did you talk about and study as far as how they dealt with what happened? In a very Canadian way, they felt too guilty to speak with people about what they were going through. They suffered in silence because they thought that they didn't deserve the help as much as someone Mm -hmm. else. So they described a year of nightmares, um, memories triggered by smoke and helicopter sounds, feeling isolated, detached, self-blaming, as I said, problems with concentrating and sleep. And of course, many of them had to up and move neighborhoods. So the the whole family right. uh, rhythm of their life was really thrown up in the air. Very much post-traumatic. They called it a profound loss. Yeah, very much post-traumatic or traumatic stress kind of order disorder. Mm-hmm. Very similar. So, are all emergency situations similar? Do do people if, if fires and and whatever they might be, should you prepare the same way? Is that what you've learned? Uh, well, they're all they're all natural responses to disaster. So, as you said, you can get this post-traumatic stress or grief symptoms. But also your experience of having to evacuate affects how that affects you. So if you can plan ahead, if you can prepare, Mm -hmm. gas up, get at least a couple of boxes with things like your passports Mm -hmm. and papers that you need in them, medications, you will feel a lot less uh, discombobulated, as I said, if it turns out that you have to go. We also, uh, through Uh, them, suggest... Don't forget your neighbors. Uh, yeah. Think about someone down the street who may need okay. help from you. 
Thank you, and Marianne. Talk to them now. Absolutely. Very helpful. And I really appreciate you joining me this morning. We've got to go. Take care. Thank you, Marianne. Good- I'm George Affleck in for Mike Smith uh, today and for the next couple of weeks. So please join me as I make my way through this couple of weeks for Mike, who I hope is enjoying a, a well-deserved vacation. So much of BC is already covered in smoke. And when it comes to you know the lower mainland, it's not a question of if there will be smoke, but when. And why exactly is this is it bad to breathe smoke and, and what does it actually you know physically do to you? And more importantly, how do you mitigate these effects? I'm joined now by Dr. Michael Brower, professor of UBC's School of Population and Public Health. Hello, Dr. Brower. Good morning. Thanks for joining me. So, you know, we all know that cigarette smoke, you know, that's bad. It's going to kill you. Uh, But, you know, a summer of smoke from fires, you know, how does that really bad for you? Yeah, well, what we know is that, especially in these acute events, so when we get uh, four or five days, um, a week or so of really high smoke, um, that we see more people needing to be hospitalized. And if we sort of look back over time, we can see increases. Um, in death. And really what's happening is, is uh, it, it is very similar to cigarette smoking. You're just getting a lot of, a lot of that smoke all at once. And especially people that have pre-existing diseases, oh. heart disease, lung disease. Okay. It, it, it sort of triggers um, those diseases, kind of puts them, puts them over the edge. So those people who are already vulnerable are impacted worse. Why? What, you know, like things like diabetes or heart or, or lung, like all of those, or which ones are the most uh, susceptible and which ones are sort of surprisingly susceptible to, to smoke? Yeah, so it, it is all those three. So lung disease, and I think that makes sense to people. Mm-hmm. Um, so their lungs are already a, a compromised and we're breathing this smoke in. Um, you're already having difficulty basically getting enough oxygen into your system. Um, what happens with the smoke is you, you generate inflammation in your lungs, mm-hmm. um, which makes it more difficult to, to breathe. Then that inflammation sort of spills over into your blood system. Um, so now your body is, is, is essentially inflamed, and that can, that can affect your heart, um, and it can affect other organ, organ systems. And diabetes is a good example where kind of your, your whole metabolism is, is um, I would say, a little bit unstable. And then your body is sort of faced with this, this insult, this, this inflammation, um, that diabetes can sort of get out of control. So we see that as another population of so people with type 2 diabetes. Um, again, people with some level of heart disease, we know that smoke can trigger heart attacks. It can trigger a stroke. Um, again, especially if you have some, um, you know, pre, pre-existing disease. The other population that we, we don't have a lot of information on this, but we start with seeing some evidence in uh, pregnant women, especially mm-hmm. if you're in the last trimester of your pregnancy. Um, those babies can, babies who are um, uh, born from women in the last trimester experience um, a smoke event they tend to be a little bit lower birth weight um, as well. For, and for most cases, that there's really no, no severe implications of that. But if there was already some challenges in the pregnancy or if the baby was already um, low birth weight, perhaps you know, bordering on premature, this can now again shift you into a bit of a danger right. zone um, you know, where you may have, have longer-term impacts from that. So a lot of the science that we learned from smoking, uh, you can extrapolate over to, to, the, to the smoke from fires. Well, extrapolate, and, and, you know, we are accumulating a lot of studies, um, which is sort of unfortunate. 
that yeah. we have more and more of these events all over the world, not just here in D.C., but there's, there's impact, you know, smoke events in Europe. People have probably heard of, you know, all the bushfire smoke in Australia. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're just accumulating a lot more information on how harmful um, this smoke is. Um, historically, people, I think, had the thought that, you know, this is natural, you're burning wood, um, this can't really be that harmful. And what we're learning as we, you know, see more of these events and, and study what happens is that the smoke is very harmful. Even in these short periods of, you know, smokers, you know, smoke for 20, 30 years, but you're talking about, you know, a week of smoke or two weeks of smoke in the summer. I mean, it's surprising that it would have that kind of impact. It, I think it is a little bit surprising. Um, when we look at sort of air pollution in general, mm-hmm. um, this is by, if you are in experience a smoke event, um, this is by far the highest levels of air pollution that you will face throughout the entire year in D.C. And levels can be 10 to even 100 times higher than kind of our normal levels um, that, that you may experience, um, even, you know, in, in an urban area. Right. So these, we're getting, getting levels that are, you know, what people are seeing day in, day out in, in, in countries like India, for example, when, right. when we have a smoke event. So or, they're really high levels. Or like Los Angeles, for example, even the valley there, or you have smog. Is it, that, is it equal to that? Oh, much worse. Much worse. Much, much, much worse than that. Um, so this is, um, and what we don't know um, is whether having this sort of, you know, one year and then, you know, for two weeks, do you fully recover if you're otherwise healthy? Right. And we're starting to get a little bit of evidence to suggest that there may be sort of a cumulative effect. We don't know how long mm. that it, it accumulates for. Um, and that, that also depends on your, your underlying health. Mm-hmm. Um, so people who have some compromises, heart disease, lung disease, um, even this, this sort of two weeks, and they may, they may experience an acute effect, um, do they actually recover? Um, or are they next no. year, are they a little bit compromised? And that, that's really the question that we're starting to grapple with. Now, it's a question that we didn't really have to worry about because this was so unusual. Mm-hmm. Now we're starting to see this becoming, you know, an annual thing yeah. in, in many communities in the province. Three out of five years we've had these summers where the smoke, and it seems like now and now they're starting earlier, which is even worse. What can people do to mitigate, you know, I mean, there's some mask up, uh, shut your doors and seal up your windows. I mean, what do you do? So, yeah, remaining indoors um, is good as long as you're not baking indoors. Mm-hmm. So we, we want to worry about people also, yeah. you know, keeping it, keeping cool. Yeah. Um, if you have um, uh, central air conditioning, um, whether that's a you know, residence or institutional commercial building, mm-hmm. um, you, can, you can put a higher quality filter on that. So you're bringing in air from outside, filtering it. Um, if you don't have air conditioning, uh, buying a room air cleaner. So these are portable air cleaners. Mm-hmm. Um, cost a couple hundred dollars. Um, they're very effective. Oh, is that um, right? What you have to do? They're not just a, is, they're not just a thing that looks cool in your room. It's like they actually work. <laughs> no, they actually work really well, hmm. um, and um, they they have to be sized appropriately for the room, and mm-hmm. that's right on the on the the marketing information on on the box. 
and you want that room to be basically sealed up as much as possible. So you, you need to close windows and ideally even close doors. And you're just providing clean air in that room. If the windows are open, then you're trying to clean all the air outside, which is really challenging to do. Do you? Um, so those were. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. So no. Do you see that you know governments, especially municipal governments, will have to change their building codes and really push for central air uh, that's just you know that's cleaned? Is that going to be something we're going to be required now in British Columbia, where you know we we live in a temperate climate historically, and we we've had a hot summer, and now we have fires. Uh, is this the new normal that we're going to have to build our homes that include air conditioning and air purifiers and all these things? Well, I think, I think certainly from the heat um, event that we experienced, um, we are especially vulnerable because we don't have air conditioning. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's been the eye opener um, for many people that we, we do need to think about this. And, and again, mm-hmm. it's not, it's not as though we're going to need to run air conditioning, you know, every day of the summer, but even for, you know, those five, 10 days uh, out of the year when we get really extreme heat, we know that works. We know that we save lives with air conditioning. And then it only makes sense to think about air conditioning and air cleaning. And then also because of COVID, we've had to think more about ventilation. Ventilation. Um, Again, not so much in our homes, but in sort of our institutional and commercial buildings. And we just really haven't put enough emphasis on this. So there's lots of good reasons uh, to be thinking about this. And also, even just from the energy conservation yeah, perspective, got, climate change, things like that, that, there are, there are, there are okay. lots of ways that we can improve our, our buildings. Thank, I got to go, operator. Dr. Brower. But yeah, that's a really good point. I appreciate you being here today. Sure, my pleasure. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33 with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market george affleck in for mike smith today and for the next couple of weeks while well, mike takes a bit of a vacation well deserved for sure and feel free to call our buzz line today if on any of the subjects that we're talking about, 604-331-2899, uh, 604-331-2899. You can follow me on Twitter, George underscore Affleck, or you want to email me, George at CKNW.com. So yesterday on the show, uh, Mike talked to, uh, we had, had a chat about golf courses. Uh, Brisbane in Australia just closed uh, its major golf course, and it's going to reopen it as a huge park with a bunch of other facilities on, on the grounds. We talked to, Mike talked to Brent Totterin, former city planner, and first uh, Brent talked about the cost-benefit analysis of this. Best bang for the buck. Where, what is the best decision in the public interest uh, based on the actual crises that we have, you know, we have a climate crisis, we have an affordable housing crisis. Last time I checked, we don't have a golf crisis. So those are not equal things in the conversation about 
uh, our urgent critical public needs. But it's also, as Patrick said, it's, it's about getting full use and value out of public land. You know, Brent also talked about it because this always gets people going. Brent also talked about uh, the, uh, you know, it's not about undervaluing golf. I don't, I don't say to anybody that they're wrong when they say that golf is popular, that uh, it has a value to people. All of that is true. But the hard part about city planning is, is that reality, is that truth more important than all the other truths in terms of our critical need for affordable housing? Or, you know, uh, trading a golf course for affordable housing is particularly polarizing. This is why I find the Brisbane example more uh, difficult to just uh, wave off because it's, it's just opening up the green space for more people. Golf courses, changing them into something else. This is not news and not new to my next guest, John Cooper, who is a Park Board Commissioner, NPA, uh, I guess, mayoral candidate at this point. Uh, and he's been on uh, Park Board for 10 years. John, how long has it been? Yes, it's coming up 10 years. And uh, and yes, I am the NPA mayoral to <laughs> okay. candidate. And there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. <laughs> okay. Thank you, George. <laughs> uh, I, I would like to just, a couple of facts yeah. that seemed to get missed the other day when uh, when Mr. Totteran were on. Mm-hmm. First of all, Brisbane has 20 golf courses. In the city, like in the city In the proper. city of Brisbane. Mm-hmm. Vancouver has 11. Of those, three are public golf courses and okay. three are pitch and putts. So, you know, yes, it's big news that they've decided to change one course over, but We've done that in our history. If you look at mm-hmm. uh, Van Dusen Botanical Gardens, right. that yeah. used to be a golf course, and we converted it. So maybe we were just ahead of Brisbane. <laughs> but nice. the other thing I'd like to point out is, you know, that he was talking about it being a, a park in the center of Brisbane. We have a pretty robust park in the center of Vancouver called Stanley Park, which is 1,000 acres. Um, so we, we were ahead of the curve there as well. And as well, right close to Langara golf course is our second largest park which is uh, Queen Elizabeth Park but you know this the argument they're making and and this is I mean, this is not new in Vancouver and we saw it happen in the last term and we've seen it pop up in this term for you guys you know as far as we need the land for other stuff and golf's a waste of space and they're not when you look at the ratio of people golfing versus people who want to you know I don't know jog <laughs> whatever they else you know playgrounds for kids you know soccer fields for teenagers these are things that are more important than a golf course. I mean, why, why, why bother keeping a golf course when there's so many better ways to use that green space? Well, you, you, you know, you're saying better ways, but let's talk about let's talk about some of those other sports. For instance, we devote, uh, you know, fields for for field sports. So we mm-hmm. do ice rinks, we do swimming pools, we do all of those things, and we don't. And generally, you know, people enjoy those things. It's the same with golf. Golf is interesting. I'm not a golfer myself. But um, Canada's golf partic- participation rate is number one of all countries in, in the world, actually. Mm-hmm. And it's actually double the U.S. And recent uh, uh, Park Board numbers, we are actually, this year, we're getting three times as many rounds as 2017 and double our 2019 rounds. So if you look at the actual facts... Um, golf is pretty popular in in Vancouver, and we you know we do have three uh, three courses, but we also have a lot of other parks and a lot of other places. How many parks do we have total in Vancouver? Two hundred and forty. So you know the golf courses. I think there's some hidden benefits that people don't know about. First of all, they are there's financial benefits for the park board to they they're self sustaining pretty much, aren't they? 
Yes, they are. And in fact, uh, the green fees uh, pay, they go into a, a fund and they pay for the maintenance as well. And they're also re- a revenue positive uh, um, you know, contributor to the mm-hmm. park board. The other thing is there's a lot of partnerships around biodiversity, whether it be uh, pollinator gardens, the Mason Bee Program. Uh, so there's other things happening there's on these golf courses. A lot of things happening in parks. And only 50% of the land on these golf properties are, are for golf. The other 50 are non-golf surfaces, so they include natural forests, water bodies, ponds. Jogging roots on Langara. Naturalized yeah. area. And they're like a big, you know, green, um, you know, uh, reservoir in the center of our cities. And, you know, the, the two that we have that are close to the Fraser River, uh, McCleary and Fraser View, and then we've got one uh, kind of in the, you know, the center, south, mm-hmm. south, uh, south part of the city. So, okay, you're uh, want to be mayor, John Cooper becomes mayor of Vancouver, but you know it's not now you're not in park board, so that's not your priority because you know park board is its own little weird entity, uh, as we all know. You're well, now the mayor. Uh, all right, not okay. A weird, uh, it's not a weird entity. Uh, well, it's you sure been weird the last couple of years, John. It I'll has tell been, you, but hey. Okay. Anyways, I don't want to get on that. Let's just talk about you. Okay. Sure. Suddenly, the pressure's on you for housing, John. You got to build some housing. We need some affordable housing. Why don't you nibble away at the corners of these golf courses and put some nice, you know, housing around them? There's all that space. Well, you know, suddenly John Cooper's going, "Oh yeah, I need to make my people happy. I'm gonna, I'm gonna nibble away at that park board stuff." Well, I think long before we do that, we've got some big chunks of land right in Vancouver that we're not touching right now. We've got the old city yard between the Camby Bridge and Columbia from First Avenue to the water that's sitting completely vacant. There's a plan for that. I don't mm-hmm. know why we're not building housing there. And if, then if you look over the other side where the viaducts are supposed to come down, what is going on there? There's all that land in the center of the city, nothing on it. Mm-hmm. So there's lots of places to look before you start going after parks and golf courses and public amenities. That's the way I would look at it. Um, I think there's an awful lot to be done, and there's already plans in place. I don't know why this mayor and this council are dragging their feet on <laughs> okay. uh, opening, up, opening up these parcels of land. Okay. The one, the one, where, the one in the, uh, right next to the Olympic Village is right next to a subway station, the Olympic Village subway yeah. station. It's... You know, there's a close seawall the, there. Uh, medical, you know, healthcare district it, and all that close stuff. Close to the hospital, yeah. the new hospital. Why are we? Why are we not? Why are we sitting on that land right now? There's a. There's a greenhouse on there, and there's a bunch of parked cars. Okay, so one of the other things that Brent talked about, though, in his interview with Mike yesterday was planning. And, hey, you know what? It's no, nothing wrong with going and saying, hey, let's take a look at the big picture here one more time and say, okay, we've got three golf courses. Is this the best use? Should we have a public process? Talk to the people of Vancouver. Do a robust, just like Vancouver Council just is doing with their Vancouver plan. Uh, why can't Park Board say, you know, we should be, every 10 years we need to look at this and think about this and think about maybe there's a better way to use this land is that not something the park board should be doing on a regular basis well that's something they are doing actually there's a, there's a study underway presently to look at exactly that and we've just done a whole lot of work around this uh, 25 year uh, uh, plan called van play so the, the park board is looking ahead as they always have done and um, you know making some making some progress we'll see what happens I would just like to say what I did notice on uh, both uh, Patrick Condon and, and mm-hmm. uh, your, your guest, uh, Brent, Brent Tottering, yeah. you know, as soon as there's a story about one golf course, you know, <laughs> halfway, well, more than, not, more than halfway around the world, it's like 12,000 miles from here, it's a story in Vancouver <laughs> that, whoa, we got we to jump on that right away. So I would say let's just Well, you know, John, it gets the callers coming, and you're going to stay with me because we're going to take some calls after the break, right? You going to stay there?
Absolutely. George Affleck in for Mike Smith, and we're taking your call, 604-280-9898, 604-280-9898, and John Cooper, Commissioner John Cooper is my guest, and we're talking about golf courses and whether or not, you know, what's the point? What's the point of a golf course? Should we just get rid of them? We've got Robin from Oliver. Go ahead, Robin. Uh, hi, John. Yeah, John, I live in Oliver now, but I grew up in southeast Vancouver, uh, a couple of blocks away from Fraseview Golf Course, which... Uh, was a project during the Depression. Uh, that's how Fraseview was built. But anyway, Fraseview was a war veteran neighborhood. And there were so many kids played golf in that golf course. And they, they caddied to earn a few dollars, kept them off the streets. It taught them a lot about uh, good things in life, mm-hmm. uh, integrity, honesty, and fair play, uh, camaraderie networking it, it was just a fantastic opportunity for kids yeah. uh, to learn things about life as they grew up and i'll tell you something up the street at the Fraserview boys club a lot of the kids wound up going to brandon lake i don't know if you remember brandon lake but it was a kind of a notorious jail uh, juvenile delinquent house when uh, we were growing up okay. in, in the 1960s so there's so many things aside from golf that can be utilized from golf courses all right robin thanks get together they have group they have group lessons they get together they learn about life they learn about the sport they they can make careers out of thanks robin yeah john you know i mean obviously i think you're like high-fiving this guy right now going yeah right on that's exactly how i feel right well no i think i think what it is though he brings up a really good point so there's a lot of uh, all of our courses have a lot of uh junior development for instance fraserview uh junior training and development at the fraserview golf academy it's mm-hmm. for kids four to eighteen they focus on golf social life skills they had nine hundred participants last year and there's a girls uh a girls club player development down at fraserview and and eight to twelve year olds and it's increased almost thirty percent in the last few years so there are a lot of things, like sometimes I think people make the mistake um, of, of thinking golf is just kind of an elite thing. It's played by the rich or whatever, and mm-hmm. that's the whole difference with public courses. You don't need a membership. It's for everybody, and uh, like the gentleman did say, uh, you learn a lot of good lessons about uh, All right. about how to get by. Colette from Vancouver, your thoughts on golf? Whether we Hi should there. Get good rid of morning. Good morning. I go to Langara Golf Course uh, along the walking and jogging path mm-hmm. on a regular basis. So not golfing, you're walking. You're just. I'm walking, yeah. and many people are walking mm-hmm. and jogging, and we love the trees. If that were to be turned into a park, let's say, or a, okay, or housing. <laughs> uh, well, maybe some social mm. housing, perhaps. Oh, okay. But for God's sake, don't take those beautiful trees down. Yeah, thanks, Colette. John, that's a you know two points there. One is is the issue of uh, Langara's kind of found a way to use the, some of the land around it, but I don't get the sense the other two golf courses had that kind of access for other uses. Uh, there, there is availability, absolutely, and also if you, we've planted about four thousand trees uh, over the last number of years on our golf courses. So we're really working on uh, on making them available to folks and also uh, making them really environmentally sustainable. The other thing is, is most of the water that we use to water in our golf courses, for instance, Fraserview, sixty five percent of the water is non potable water. Uh, it's the same. It's much the it same from, with Langara. Well, it comes from the 
the ponds that are there that uh, that take rainwater, and mm-hmm. there in inland Garrett particularly, there there is an aquifer mm-hmm. uh, where there there's pond supply and natural participation in All an right. aquifer. But only uh, you know a hundred percent of the water use at Langara comes from non-potable water, so we're not even using any city water for that golf course. All Amazing right. statistic. It? That's interesting. Uh, okay, call, thanks, Colette. Uh, Pat from Vancouver. Hi, um, I didn't actually hear the interview yesterday, but I did want to make a comment on mm-hmm. the environmental impact of golf courses. Okay. Um, I played a lot of golf and a lot of golf courses in Vancouver. You go to a golf course, you will see everything from turtles, frogs, geese with mm-hmm. hatchlings. You'll see ducks. I belong to a course. There's uh, two eagles' nests. There are raccoons. I mean, these are environmental enclaves in the middle of the city. Right. You'd completely lose that if you were to start building housing that, on them. Thanks, Pat. Yeah, John. That's you know, it is a point that just because it's not a park, uh, the space is green. It's got trees. It's got places for a whole bunch of other things. And and, and do you guys study that about what other things <laughs> exist on these golf courses that we don't even think uh, about? Absolutely. Absolutely. So our three courses are Audubon International certified. Only 4.2% of golf courses in BC are certified, and only 4% of courses in Canada are certified, and all three of ours are. So there's a lot of work with Audubon International on environmental planning, wildlife management, habitat management, and and a lot of great stuff that that they've been doing, and and we're learning. And some of those best practices we're starting to use in other parks. All right, Dennis from West Van, real quick, what's your thoughts on golf courses? Get rid of them. What do you want to do? Well, George, obviously, you're not a golfer, but uh, P&E land, <laughs> well, I, would get rid of the, I would get rid of P&E land before I get rid of a golf course, I can tell you that. Yeah, that's a good point, Dennis. Thanks. You know, John, there's other, you, you mentioned this, but the P&E, it's called uh, Hastings Park. Where, where's, there's not much of a park there. There's a little teeny corner of it that's parky, but it's not owned by the park board. It's owned by the city. So you're the mayor of Vancouver. You're going you're gonna to throw some grass down and get rid of the playland when you become mayor? Well, certainly there's an opportunity there to uh, really take a look at the P&E and see what else we could do there, because I, I can tell you there's an awful lot of pavement there, and um, there is, um, you know, the housing? Can you put some housing in the there? center. Can you put some housing well, on I think, there? I think you'd have to really, you'd have to look at what could be done. Um, that, that, I think that whole footprint is pretty underutilized. All right. Sure. Thanks, John. I appreciate you joining me today. Thank you, George. Always a pleasure.